Lord, we thank you so much for this time for us to be together as brothers and sisters in Christ and to contemplate the issue of your providence, that you are in control of all things, and yet we're not looking at blind fate. We're looking at providence with eyes, a Heavenly Father that's guiding our lives with a loving hand, those of us who are in Christ. And we pray, Father, Lord, that you would help us to not just understand um, the truths of this doctrine, but help us to see how it expresses your love and care and how that we can live with more trust and faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's start with this question or, or this statement that's behind me, which I found on, uh, of all places, uh, YouTube comments on a song that I was looking at. Uh, this uh, lady named Quizel says, Bitterness and anger was all I felt when my father murdered my mother. I hated God so much, and I felt like the world was caving in on me. What do you say to someone in this kind of situation? You know, what do you say that God is in control? Because her father murdered her mother. That's not God's doing. But if God's in control of all things, if he isn't, as we're as we looked at last week and as we'll look at today, God's in control. He's the first cause of all things. And yet he's says that he's good and yet you've got a woman whose father murdered her mother this last week over by foothill bible church there's a plane that dropped out of the sky onto a house and killed the pilot um every week and our church is only we're we're seeing maybe five five hundred people five fifty come to this church imagine c.h spurgeon who was a pastor of thousands in the sermon i was listening to this week Yes, somebody comes in and says, please pray for my uh, my son. They've just been diagnosed with this deadly illness. Please pray um, uh, for this family member. Their wife died. Please pray for me. My husband is leaving me. Please pray for this family member. They're addicted to alcohol. And just person after person would come to him after service asking for prayer and he says, after five, six people I've prayed for, there's a line of 20 more with similar such stories of just suffering after suffering after suffering. Uh, Spurgeon says that there's the two-edged sword of Christ's promise that he says, in this world you will what? Have tribulation. It's a promise. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And so as believers, um, you know, what does the doctrine of God's providence have to say for us? We have sickness, business losses, trials in our family, wayward children, um, our own decisions that we've made. Sometimes you make a decision early in life and then you pay the consequences for that decision later in life. And you can wake up morning after morning with this this feeling in your gut like oh that i would have decided differently when i was 16 or when i was 25 and but here you are in life dealing with decisions that were made many many years ago what is a what is a christian to do with these things so let's just do a little bit of review from last week as uh, chris 
introduced us and did a fabulous job um, just reminding us of the doctrine of providence. We looked at um, preservation and um, we looked at concurrence. And I don't know if you guys got to government, but we'll just, I can't remember, maybe just a little bit. And so in, in preservation, we see that um, that God keeps all created things existing and maintains their properties. So grass is still grass, water is still water. So part of the doctrine of God's providence is, is God just keeping and moving things. Concurrence is the idea that he works in and through all things. And so what we're going to talk more about that today, just how that God is, he's divinely ordering things and yet human beings have responsibility. And then there's also just his, his government over all things, that things are not just working by chance, but they're working by appointment. And that God is, counts himself and describes himself as the king, um, which kind of, let's go back to this definition that was referred to last week, the Heidelberg Catechism. We'll develop this definition from the scriptures today, but I love the way this is summarized for us, summarizes the doctrine of God's providence. His almighty and ever-present power, whereby as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Uh, this is, I just want to propose you, this is one of the grand themes of Scripture. I really believe that as Christians, if we would read all of our Bibles and read all of our Bibles a lot, it would be impossible for us to escape this conclusion that God everywhere in Scripture indicates that he controls it all he controls plant life weather provision health sickness riches poverty and that these things aren't just the result of chance and fate but they actually come about as a result of god's fatherly guidance now there is a difference but for those that are believers and for those who are unbelievers um, God is kind to both, but as we as we look this morning at the doctrine of God's providence, as Christians, we can take hope that anything that comes into our life comes into our life because God has a good end, as a, a good end in mind. People that aren't believers, people that haven't embraced Christ, it's a question mark: Will they come to know Christ and then find that God's purposes did have a good end? Or will they reject Christ and ultimately be rejected by God and then know the things that were in their life were not for their own good? But nevertheless, even for the unbeliever, while it may not be for their ultimate good, it will be, as, we, as we'll see, for God's ultimate good and glory, even in the judgment of those <clears throat> that reject him. So this doctrine raises some very important questions. Um, if God really is the one who works all things according, if he preserves all of creation and he's acting through it and he is governing it, how exactly are we to understand divine sovereignty and human freedom? How do those work hand in hand? 
Secondly, if God is sovereign, then why are we held responsible for evil things uh, when we do them? And why isn't God held responsible? You understand the question? If he's in control, why is he finding fault with me? And then number, we'll get to it, right? Um, And then thirdly, how can God be good and powerful and there still be evil in the world? God's clearly in control of all things. The Bible indicates he's good, and yet we have evil in this world. How can those three possibly coalesce? And so what we're going to suggest is three different um, propositions that flow right out of our, our curriculum. We're going to, in these three propositions, we believe that this help brings us at least to the biblical, a biblical answer to the questions of human responsibility, God's sovereignty, why he can hold us responsible, and also the problem of evil. If you guys want a big theological word for the problem of evil, we call it theodicy. It's a question that really people have been asking since the beginning of time, not just in Christianity, but every system of philosophy and religion has to answer the question of theodicy. Why is there evil in the world? So the first proposition is God is absolutely sovereign. And we see this all over the Bible. Um, You have some like the Psalms listed there. He does whatever he pleases. 135 verse 6. The Lord does whatever he pleases. In Isaiah 14, God is the one that lifted up Assyria, but he is also the God that will crush Assyria for uh, bringing harm to his people. Um which is very interesting when you think about it. The whole book of Habakkuk is a is a mini theodicy. You know, Habakkuk's opening question is, God, um, your people are evil. They are they are throwing themselves headlong into sin. Why aren't you doing anything about it? To which the Lord answers, well, I am. I'm going to bring the Assyrians down to judge them. Then Habakkuk backs up and says, wait a second, they're more wicked than your people. Well, don't worry, I'm going to bring Babylon in to judge them. Then he stands back and he just puts his hand over his mouth and says, you're God, even if nothing blooms and none of the deer can have their babies. And if everything turns to dust, I will praise you. And so, but it sets up that question what are we dealing with here? We're dealing with a God who is moving pieces in a way that if you or I were to try to do this, we'd be accused of being mafia bosses. Yet God can do this, and yet he is considered righteous and good. He is sovereign. Uh, Ephesians 1.11, a very famous passage. In fact, let's let's turn there. Ephesians 1.11 in, in the, I think the gals, you've gotten to this verse, haven't you, in your study yet? You guys have already gotten there. And so in him, we also have obtained an inheritance being predestined, Paul says, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things according, who does he counsel with? Himself, his own will. He's working everything together. Um, for his own will. We talk about water cycles. You can talk about Ezra. Ezra acknowledges that God is the one that moved upon Cyrus 
to send them back to rebuild the temple. I, I want to point out a couple of verses that I, if you, any of you big fans of like first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, if anyone wants me to buy it, anyone to buy me a t-shirt that I would just follow all over myself, just say, I love first and second Kings or something like that. Um, or Jehoshaphat is my homeboy, something like that. It's just, but one of the themes of the Kings and Chronicles is the absolute sovereignty of God. Open up, uh, to Second Chronicles ten fifteen. Ten fifteen. This is the event. Remember, uh, so Solomon, right? He has a divided heart, which turns into a divided kingdom. A prophet comes to Jeroboam, and you have this weird ripping apart of a garment. And he says, "You're going to get ten tribes. If you follow the Lord, He's going to be with you." Nevertheless, I'm going to give some tribes to Rehoboam for the sake of my servant David. So. Rehoboam wants to go into battle, but God says, no, this is from me. This is my will. Don't go into battle with Israel. So we have this division now. So then Rehoboam goes to get counsel of his older men. And and then he tries to get counsel from his young buddies that he's been hanging out with his whole life. Right. So which counsel do you think Rehoboam goes with the old wise guys or the guys who are his buddies? His buddies. Right. But notice what happens in 1015. Uh, so right after he gets counsel from his buddies, instead of appealing to the people and saying, hey, I will treat you nicely. He says, no, I'm going to be more harsh on you than than my father was. Then verse 15. So the king did not listen to the people. Why? For the turn of events was from God that the Lord might fulfill his word, which he had spoken by the hand of Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So, so Ahijah is the one who made the prophecy to Jeroboam that he was going to be king. Rehoboam is looking for counsel. He makes a decision to not listen to the people, not listen to the council. He's responsible. But the text tells us, but this turn of events was from God so that he would fulfill the prophecy that he had made to Jeroboam. What are we talking about here? Um, look over at chapter 22. Same book, 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles is awesome, by the way. Here's another t-shirt you guys could get me. A t-shirt that says, I drive like Jehu. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I see somebody out there. I don't know who it is, but it looks like it's somebody who drives like Jehu. He's a wild man. I'm joking. Actually, people tell me like they when I'm driving with them, they say, could you please keep your eyes on the road? Stop looking at me. You're making me uncomfortable because I like to look at people while I'm driving. Anyway, I drive like Jehu. Um, so Second Chronicles 22, 27. Wait, not 22, 27, 22, 2 to 7. Um, so this is the whole uh, Azariah passage where Azariah ends up getting kind of caught in the fire, so to speak, the Jehu wrath that's coming down. And um, but notice, let's just read verses six and seven. We don't have time to develop the whole story. Uh, but then he returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which he had received from at Ramah when he fought against Hazael, king of Syria, and Azariah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah. 
went down to see Jehoram, the son of Ahab in Jezreel, because he was sick. I have time to explain all that. But verse 7, his going to Joram was God's occasion for Azariah's downfall. For when he arrived, he went out with Jehoram against Jehu, the son of Nimshai, whom the Lord had anointed to cut off the house of Ahab. So his going down wasn't just his own decision in happenstance. This was God's occasion for the downfall of Ahaziah. Uh, 25 verse 20 is another place in the same book. Amaziah would not heed. Now Amaziah is this guy that listens at first. He wants to go into battle against the Edomites, Seir, with Israel. But God says, no, don't do that because they've so rejected me. I'm not going to bless them. In fact, look at, it's pretty crazy. Look at verse 8, chapter 25, verse 8. The prophet says, but if you go, go ahead, be strong in battle. This is very sarcastic. Even so, God shall make you fall before your enemy. For God has power to help and to overthrow. So he's like, don't go in with them. And, and he's basically like, but I've already paid him. Don't worry about it. I'm going to give you what you need. Don't go into battle. But if you want to go, go for it. I'm just telling you right now, you're going to fall. But God can help you. So he listens, goes into battle without Israel against Seir, wins an amazing victory. But then he takes their idols, brings them down, and starts worshiping the Edomite idols. It's like, God's just giving you this amazing victory. So then God sends a prophet and then, and then Amaziah doesn't want to listen. So look at verse 20, but Amaziah would not heed for it came from God that he might give them into the hand of the enemies because they sought the gods of Edom. This is one to me. This is a very scary verse in the Bible. Um, he would not, uh, Amaziah would not listen because basically God did not allow him the ability to be able to listen because he had given himself over to idols and God was seeking out his doom. It's, it's one of the verses in the Bible that should remind us that our own ability to think and perceive and make decisions doesn't entirely depend upon us. We have to be very, very careful. When the Bible says God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, that means something. And so when we exalt ourselves in pride against God and we think we can just go out and rationally just make decisions in pride and that somehow everything's just going to turn out okay, even though we're stiff arming God and we're resisting God and we really don't want God's will for our life. You know, God may give us exactly what we want and give us all the right rationale to do it. Um, but humbler, he gives more grace, James says. He gives more grace is the point of James 4. Yes, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the what? Humble. What was Amaziah's problem? Look at verse 19. Indeed, the prophet says, you say that you have defeated the Edomites and your heart is lifted up to boast. Stay at home now. Why should you meddle with the trouble and you should fall? And go your way. Um, so anyway, God, the proposition here is that God is absolutely sovereign. And we've already seen in the text, many of the texts that we've looked at. Nevertheless, human beings are morally responsible creatures. Human beings significantly choose. They rebel. 
They obey, they believe, they defy, they make decisions, and they are rightly held accountable for such actions. But this characteristic never functions as to make God contingent. What that means is, yes, we make real decisions, but God is still the one that's ultimately in control. So did Amaziah make a real decision? Yes, but God was in control. Did Rehoboam make a real decision? Did he seek counsel? Yes, he did. Did he decide to go with the young guys rather than the old guys? Yes, he did. Is he held responsible for his decisions? Yes, he is. But God was seeking an occasion to fulfill his prophecy through Rehoboam's pride. Yeah, exactly. Boom. Um, Human beings are responsible for their actions before God. And this responsibility we see all over scripture. Um, We'll we'll leave these other scriptures for you to look up. But I think we've established that case already with the passages we've looked at. Um, And then thirdly, the Bible insists, however, that God is perfectly good. You can look at all these different passages. First John one five that God is light and there's no darkness in Him at all. Psalm ninety two fifteen the Lord is upright. Uh, there is no unrighteousness in Him. Psalm one forty five nine the Lord is good to all. And so we see all throughout the Bible these three propositions: God's absolutely in control. Human beings are morally responsible creatures. The Bible insists that God is perfectly good. And so that brings us to basically the doctrine that we believe at Cornerstone that has been the traditional teaching of the church for hundreds of years. And I believe it runs all the way out through the Bible. I don't think you can read your Bible, Genesis to Revelation, without coming to this kind of conclusion. Um, if you just kind of like spot and just drop down and kind of like dip from verse to verse, right? You just kind of go to the verses that you want to dip into then, yeah, you can come to another conclusion. But if you just start in Genesis and just study the Bible, you're going to come to this kind of conclusion that though the free will of man seems irreconcilable with the proposition of God's sovereignty, they both do exist and are compatible with one another. Some people call this divine compatibilism. D.A. Carson explains it this way. The Bible as a whole and many times in specific texts presupposes or teaches that both of the following propositions are true. God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in such a way that human responsibility is curtailed, minimized, or mitigated. Human beings are morally responsible creatures. They significantly choose, rebel, obey, believe, defy, make decisions, and so forth. And, um, and they are rightly held accountable for such actions, but this characteristic never functions as to make God absolutely contingent. When we say God's not contingent, it means that it, God is primary. He doesn't like, he's not kind of waiting to see how things turn out. And so I, I forget where this is on your outline, but so this was kind of how we would, another way we'd summarize it. God is sovereign over all things. Sin, evil, and Satan included. And human beings are completely responsible for their sinful actions. And we see this, again, all over the Bible. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run past a couple of these and drop down into some more, some special examples. But um, we see it in Joseph, right? I'm not going to spend much time on Joseph because we've been preaching through Joseph. But it's just undeniable 
you look at the human responsibility. Joseph's brothers are responsible for selling him into slavery. They were eating while he was in a pit. And then his life is he's a slave who then is unjustly accused by Potiphar's wife and he's thrown in prison and then he's forgotten about. And there's all these things that would make any one of us say, what is going on here? Um, This is not the way I was expecting my life to turn out. I thought God loved me and had a wonderful plan for my life. And here I am in prison, uh, a slave in Egypt. And yet it's Joseph himself that tells his brothers, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves for God sent me here to preserve your life. God sent me here, he says again. Then verse eight of 45. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Think about that statement that Joseph makes. Did did the brothers sell him into slavery? Yes. So in that sense, did they send him off into Egypt? Yes. But Joseph realizes that their decisions do not determine God's decisions. God is not contingent upon them. God sent him. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me, but God. That's why he can say in 50 verse 20. Now think about this. Because the word volitional terms are used for both Joseph's brothers and for God. As for you, you meant evil against me. Meant. That means you willed. You did something. You used your volition. You meant evil, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive today. So what this this one verse teaches us is human beings do things. God does things, but God's will overrules human will. And yet human beings are still responsible for their actions. This is taught all over the Bible. We have the same idea in Job. The book of Job, one of my favorite books in the Bible. Um, And it, it sets up Job. With One of the things that's so cool about the book of Job is this is probably the most ancient, piece of literature that we have in our Bibles. And yet it is so sophisticated, uh, both from a literature standpoint and from a philosophy standpoint, based upon an evolutionary viewpoint on the development of philosophy and things like that. This kind of stuff should not have been written at the time that it was written at the time that was experienced by Job and Job. If you understand Job properly, Job, It's wisdom literature. It's also a drama that has poetry in it, but it also probably fits into the category that's described in Proverbs as a riddle. When you're when you're reading through the book of Job, it's 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 a riddle where you're reading through it and you're like, "Okay, I'm on Job's side right now. Oh, wow, that wasn't good, Job. You shouldn't have said that. I'm on their side now. Oh, these guys are saying a lot of good stuff. I love what Bildad says right there. Zophar, you're the man. You know, you're kind of like, you know, Bildad, you know, Zophar, all these guys, Eliphaz. These guys are saying so much good stuff. You find yourself rooting for them and saying, that's right. And then Job fires back and you're like, Job, I thought you were a righteous guy, man. That's not cool. What are you saying? You're, bl- you're saying God is to be blamed? And you go through all this. 
And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, pops up this Elihu character. And the church has been debating for about 2,000 years what to do with Elihu. Nobody's quite sure. Uh, Thomas Aquinas puts him in one category. Calvin puts him in a completely different category. And then God shows up on the scene, starts going after Job. And then when God's done talking, he says, here's the conclusion of the matter. You guys did not speak rightly concerning my servant Job. He's the righteous one. You better ask him to pray for you and sacrifices because I'm having wrath and anger that's going to come upon you. This is my servant Job. And you're kind of like, what? <laughs> Job's still the buff guy, blameless, right? He's blameless, undefiled, fears God, shuns evil. He's buffs, right? And so he's buffs in the beginning of the book and the end of the book. God is ultimately his protector, enters into relationship, covenant relationship with him. All this to say, Job acknowledges here, see verse 21, 22. Job arose after all this stuff comes down from the devil. Well, first, let's talk about the contingency that's involved. You guys know the story. God's bragging about Job. Satan says, oh, he's only worship you because you give them all kinds of stuff and you bless them okay well i don't think that's true but go ahead you can touch them this far god's contingent gives satan a little bit of contingency but then satan doesn't come out and directly attack them you've got the Sibians, right and then you've got the chaldeans and then you've got some wind that comes in <clears throat> so you've got all this contingency god you've got the devil You've got Sabians who are using their will. You've got Chaldeans using their will. You've got Jabe's poor kids that are sitting there having a party, right? <clears throat> and then you've got weather that comes in. And then you've got all the, a few servants that are able to survive. They come and tell Job. Job tears his robe, shaves his head, goes into mourning, and yet he worships at the end of all of this. And what is, what is, who does Job blame? Does Job say, the devil did it? Like Flip Wilson. Anybody remember Flip Wilson? The devil did it. Uh, does he, uh, is he blame, is he blaming the, the Sabians, the Chaldeans? Is he looking at the wind? Oh, it's just the weather systems. You know, it's just this kind of stuff happens. It's just random chance. No, he says the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So according to Job, with all the levels of contingency, who's at the top of the pile? God. God brought it. God gave. God took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But it, that doesn't change the fact that as, as his counselors come in and as he starts to dialogue, he's, he's like got questions. And he's asking a lot of questions. And at times he's saying, God, you've wronged me. And they're trying to convince him, Job, this has happened to you because of your sin. This would not obviously happen if you are a righteous guy. It must be because of your sin. And their counsel, if, if you follow their counsel, they start off kind of nice in the beginning. And then around chapter 22, everything comes out. It's like, you obviously must be mistreating widows and the poor people. You are evil. That's why this is happening. You ever enter into like, you know, sometimes you're talking to somebody and at first they're buttering you up like, hey, you know, Pastor Mike, we're talking. And then by the end, you find out what the real issue is about. Right. That's what happens. Chapter 22. 
The real issue comes down. Elihu does the exact same thing. In my opinion, Elihu is a foil because he offers nothing new to the equation. He repeats what everybody else has just said. But he says, I'm speaking new information. <clears throat> and, uh, and then God completely ignores Elihu, doesn't even acknowledge his presence, right? <clears throat> but then God draws near to who? Job. And even though he chastises him, he chastises him as a son. Chastises him. But then at the end, he says, this is my servant Job. He is blameless, upright, fears God, shuns evil. Really he's saying this guy's positionally righteous, right? You guys over here are in trouble big time because you've said that my servant, whom I love, who I have chastised, I'm contingent. I'm the one that's brought Satan in on this. I'm the one that ultimately brought these trials on him. And you're telling me, you're telling my kid that he's to be blamed because he's wicked when he's not wicked. And I have declared him righteous with my own righteousness. You guys better cry out for mercy or wrath is coming on you. That's really the riddle. The end of the riddle is, is God's the hero. He protects his kids, even though he will sovereignly chastise them for various reasons. Sometimes just to prove that his kids are his kids, Right. And in the end, God gets the glory, even though he doesn't really answer the question. At the end of Job, you're still kind of scratching your head and kind of like, okay, not all of my questions have been answered here. So, and then you go to Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus. By the way, I, I, I happen to think there's a lot of older commentaries, particularly that believe that Job is a type of Christ. I happen to buy into that, that that Job, part of his crying out in the book of Job is like Christ on the cross where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that Job is doing a little bit of that in the book of Job. <clears throat> you get to Jesus. Jesus, did he just die on the cross as an accident? Was it just kind of plan B? He was going to try to bring in the kingdom, but then all of a sudden Herod and Pilate and, and the Gentiles and the Jews, everybody gathered up against Jesus. And then he died. and Everybody's like, oh, no, what do we do now? Okay, we'll turn the cross into something good. Let's turn lemons into lemonade because it didn't quite go the way we were hoping. But maybe we can make something. Let's salvage something out of this. No, look at chapter four. Uh, when uh, you have, this is a prayer that's being offered by God's people, right? They're lifting up their voices. You get down to the bottom part of the of the passage for truly... In this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel. They're all gathered together to do what? Whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. That's divine compatibilism right there in one verse. And the Bible doesn't even blink and try to explain it. Was Herod responsible for his decisions? Yes. Was Pontius Pilate responsible for his decisions? Yes. What about the Gentile soldiers? Yes. What about the Jews that turned Jesus over? Yes. Were they ultimate in contingency? No. God was the one that had predetermined. He had planned beforehand that Jesus Christ would die on the cross and he used human agency to get it done. This is crazy. You or I could not do this. There is a creator creature distinction here. God can and does things that you and I, if we tried to do it, it would be evil and wrong. 
The devil says, I will be like the Most High. No, you dare not try to be like the Most High in this respect. God is the only one that can do these kinds of things and remain righteous and have the wisdom to do it for the good of his own glory and for the good of his people. You've also got uh, chapter 2 of Acts. Same idea. Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus Nazareth, a man attest to you by God with mighty works, wonders, signs God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, um, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by hands of lawless men. Right in one verse, you have hands of lawless men. Okay, that's sin, right? Lawless sin, right? What is sin? It's lawlessness. Hands of lawlessness put Jesus on the cross according to the determined foreknowledge plan of God. In one verse, you have human responsibility and absolute divine sovereignty. It's everywhere, folks. Think of the book of Esther. Esther is is basically kidnapped, put into a harem who's going to have her turn to go not just kind of hang out with the king. There's children here, so we're not going to. So go in and spend a night with the king. She becomes queen. And God saves a whole people that eventually leads down to the Messiah through Esther and Mordecai. Realize that Mordecai is a descendant of Kish, right? Who's a real famous descendant of Kish? Saul. Saul was commanded to kill the Amalekites, including Agag. He didn't take care of the job. The Amalekites and the Agagites, Agag is just an Amalekite word for king, descends all the way down to this time of Esther. You have a guy named Haman who is a Agagite, right? So now Mordecai, the descendant of Kish, takes care of business with Haman when Saul didn't take care of business with the Amalekites and, and Agag. Who could dream this stuff up? I mean, this is the Lord just taking care of business, bringing... Look, you know, the Esther, you got Ruth, you got this Moabitess who's just off apart from any hope whatsoever. And God sends a famine, causes, you know, Naomi to go down there, brings Ruth back up. All of a sudden now she's in the covenant of promise. A couple things from Spurgeon here. Spurgeon says this in one of the messages I sent you guys this week. I hear one say, well, sir, you seem to be a fatalist. No, far from it, there is just this difference between fate and providence. Fate is blind. Providence has eyes. Fate is blind, a thing that must be. It is just an arrow shot from a bow that must fly onward, but has no target. Not so providence. Providence is full of eyes. There is a design in everything, an end to be answered. All things are working together and working together for good. Romans eight twenty eight is not just a trite saying. They are not done because they must be done. They are done because there is some reason for it. You could go listen to the rest of the sermon on your own. I mean, just think of your own your own testimonies, how the Lord has has guided your life to where here you are today listening to the word of God. Um, And then as Christians, let's just let's just remember to look to the cross, that God is the one that ordained the cross, that there were evil things that happened. And yet Jesus died on the cross. He's, he's acquainted with suffering. 
when Jesus met up with Lazarus' death and his family, he didn't say, well, you know, this was just sovereignly meant to happen. No, he wept. Even right before he's about ready to raise him from the dead, he wept. And so Jesus uh, commiserates with human suffering. And yet we're called to look to the end, that it doesn't end with your sickness. It doesn't end with your death. It doesn't end with the death of your parents. We have families in this church who have lost kids. I remember one of our family members here at Cornerstone lost their child in an auto accident. We have fa- uh, family members who have lost, lost kids before giving birth. We have people who have lost babies after birth. We have people who have lost, lost kids early in life, parents who have died recently within this last year. We have people who struggle every week with ongoing sickness. and They don't know why they're sick. We have people in this church who struggle every week with depression. They don't know why they're depressed. They're looking at themselves. They're like, I don't think I'm in sin. I don't think I've committed sin. I think, but the sickness, this depression is in my life. How do we answer these questions? How do we deal with this? Well, if it's all about fate, there really is no answer. It's just blind. But if there really is a loving God who has a fatherly hand, and if there really is a heaven then all of these things are going somewhere. It's not just random chance. And we need to be careful that we don't just look at things through the eyes and everything that we can see. But with Paul, we're looking behind what we see, but we see the things that are unseen, which are the real things. And the reality, folks, is that we are going somewhere and it's called heaven. And that the trials and tribulations of this life are meant to help us get there. The, the psalmist in Psalm 119, we'll end on this and we'll pray, says, It is good that I've been afflicted. Before I was afflicted, guess what? I went astray. But since I've been afflicted, now I keep your law. We don't just keep his law as an end of itself. We keep his law because that draws us close to our God. Right? Let's pray. And I'll be up here for questions. Lord, we thank you so much for your, so, your sovereignty. There's so much that we could talk about in this particular lesson We pray that your spirit would just guide it and uh, direct it to our hearts. Lord, that we would be those that use this doctrine rightly. It's not meant to be used as an excuse for sin. It is meant to be uh, uh, a hope and a comfort for those that look back on sin and bad decisions we've made. And yet here we are. Um, We can also hope in things that we don't understand in our own sickness and trials. We can look to you, understanding that you are a kind God. And yet we pray for unbelievers, Lord, in our family and in our midst, that um, while they are clearly underneath your sovereignty and your providence, they are not underneath your kind uh, disposal. And so we pray, Father, that they would come under Christ and so receive your mercy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.